PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. Physical therapists diagnose and treat people of all ages with all types of health conditions to help keep them moving and functioning in daily life. The way that I'm interpreting your condition and talking to you about how I plan to proceed could in fact be some of the underpinning causes of what we saw in this data. When they do take that cognitive approach, they tend to be better in terms of function. Like most things in both practice and research, it's not as clear or as neat and tidy as the model might suggest. Welcome to this PTJ discussion podcast, the influence of fear avoidance beliefs on patient outcomes. How much influence and what are the next steps for research? Psychologist and PTJ editorial board member, Professor Chris Main, moderates today's discussion, based on a paper appearing in the August 2012 issue of PTJ, entitled, Influence of Fear Avoidance Beliefs on Functional Status Outcomes for People with Musculoskeletal Conditions of the Shoulder. The panel includes two authors from this paper, from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, Dr. Bhagwant Sindhu, and from the University of Florida, Dr. Mark Bishop. Joining them is Dr. Julie Fritz from the University of Utah. And now, Chris Main. My name is Chris Main, and I'm a clinical psychologist at Kew University in England, and I'm a board member of the Physical Therapy Journal who've asked me to moderate the discussion of this paper. The paper has a number of authors, headed up by Dr. Bhagwant Sindhu, who's with us, and another author on the paper is Dr. Mark Bishop, and the third person that's going to join us in the podcast is Dr. Julie Fritz. Dr. Sindhu is at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, uh, Associate Professor. Welcome, and thank you for joining the podcast. Thank you so much. This is a wonderful opportunity. Dr. Sindhu is an occupational therapist by background, and the second of the authors on the paper is Dr. Mark Bishop, who's a physical therapist by background, and he's at the University of Florida. So, Dr. Bishop? Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm very excited to be here. And finally, we've got Dr. Julie Fritz, professor at the University of Utah, again, a physical therapist by background. Thank you for joining us, Julie. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So the subject of the podcast is a paper by Sindhu et al. entitled Influence of Fear Avoidance Beliefs on Functional Status Outcomes for People with Musculoskeletal Conditions on the Shoulder. So I thought I'd just begin by asking Bhagwant to say a couple of things about how he got interested in this topic and the context in which he put this research together. Well, this was a good culmination of some of the work that I had done for my dissertation. After I started here in Milwaukee, I'd started collaborating with Dennis Hart, and we received a database from Focus on Therapeutic Outcomes on individuals who had gone through outpatient rehabilitation for various shoulder conditions. So in that, we found that fear was one of the assessments that was conducted, which brought me back to my dissertation where we had started looking at how fear and other psychological factors influence individuals' ability to exert effort during testing in, in rehabilitation settings. And Dr. Bishop was on my dissertation committee, and I'd read about his previous research on how fear impacts function in people with shoulder conditions. So we wanted to pursue that further, and this is the paper that came out of that discussion. 
Thank you, Mark. Have you got any comments on how you became involved in this study? Absolutely. Bagwan actually called me to find out if I'd be interested in participating and we spoke for a while about a paper that Steve George and I had done in 2009 looking at fear and function in people with shoulder pain seeking rehabilitation. On our to-do list had been to follow that up and look at this data longitudinally and I hadn't moved forward with that and when Bhagwan contacted me and asked me if I'd be interested in helping him with this project, that was uh, very exciting. The other thing that made this project incredibly interesting is that Bhagwant was going to have the opportunity to look at patients in several different diagnostic categories and the previous work that Steve and I had done had really just taken people with shoulder pain in general and so I was very interested to find out how those different diagnostic groups might differ based on their fear and how rehab would affect them. Thank you. Um, Julie, what interested you in this paper? Well, like you just said, Chris, the research that's examining the role of psychological factors, particularly things that are modifiable within the context of physical therapy treatment, are of interest to me both as a researcher and as someone who works with clinicians trying to improve patient care. So there's a fairly robust body of literature related to the fear avoidance model with respect to individuals with back pain. And it's certainly interesting to see that work extended into individuals with shoulder pain and particularly work that makes use of databases collected from practice settings, which gives perspective on the role of a psychological variable like fear on clinical outcomes in a very real-world setting. I think all of us have been impressed by the opportunity to look at such an interesting group. Could I ask you, Julie, to kick off the discussion about the findings of the study and perhaps beginning with, did it surprise you? Are there any methodological things that you think would be helpful for us to discuss and perhaps illuminate the findings in the paper? Sure. I think the bottom line for me was that the findings were very similar to other studies that have examined patients with spinal problems. Fear of movement and fear of physical activity is a psychological characteristic that relates to functional outcomes, but frankly, there are other factors that appear much more highly related to how well patients do in terms of outcomes than fear. So like most things in both practice and research, it's not as clear or as neat and tidy as the model might suggest of sort of drawing a straight line between fear of movement and resultant disability and outcomes of treatment. So we're sort of left, I think, at the end of the day with that same perspective of needing a better understanding of just how it relates and interacts with treatments and different clinical conditions and ultimately what our clinical strategies ought to be to address it. So a couple of things that jumped out to me as I read this and looked at the methods used is there's certainly a number of factors that are becoming more prominent in the literature that couldn't be measured or accounted for in the statistical modeling because they're not represented in the database. So factors like the work-relatedness of patients' injuries, are they receiving workers' compensation, other psychological factors like pain catastrophizing, depression, pain sensitivity measures, general anxiety about health. It's not practical to collect them all in a clinical database, but we know they're related to and potentially mediate the effects of fear on disability and outcomes. So we're left with those sort of gaps in our ability to build models and understand what factors relate to outcome. 
And then finally, and I'm sure we can discuss this further, the authors make some guarded conclusions about the weak relationship between fear and outcomes and what that ought to mean for treatment. And I think there's a lot more work to be done before strong recommendations about changing practice are justifiable. Yeah, thank you. That's very helpful. Back on, Mark, what about the issue of other factors? Clearly, you were limited by what was in the data set. We do understand that. Ideally, if you've been designing a data set, are there any other things that you think would have been perhaps important to illuminate this question of the relationship between pain and fear avoidance? Well, I think Julie's point about the other factors, if we start there, I think that's incredibly pertinent. What we were using was a IRT reduced one item to represent fear and just give people a high or a low designation on fear. I work with a clinical psychologist right here at the University of Florida who's shuddering right now that I've categorized fear into high and low and that we didn't have the ability to spread that out across a wider distribution. I was going to be at that point gently. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, other factors I think that I would really like to be able to consider in this type of model, certainly Julie mentioned depression as an important one. Recently, I personally have become very interested in self-efficacy and how that relates to these type of issues. And I think the whole mediation versus moderation would certainly play into some subsequent analyses that I'd like to be able to do with this data set. Yeah, I think the issue of screening, and, and I've certainly had this discussion a fair bit with Mark and other individuals, that the clinical utility of having a simple one-item cutoff dichotomy of high versus low is appealing because a lot of clinical decisions are sort of inherently a yes-no dichotomy. Either I do something or I don't do something. From a measurement perspective, that approach to screening gives up a lot of information. Yet the pragmatism from a clinician's standpoint is another consideration to weigh in that. Thank you. Can you remind me back on about how the screening question was actually phrased? I can read it out to you. So it was a single item question, which was, I should not do physical activities that might make my pain worse. It was rated on a five-point scale from zero to four, where zero means completely disagree, two means unsure, and four means completely agree. So this was coming out of Dr. Dennis Hart's previous research. I agree that for screening purposes, we do lose quite a bit of information if you try to identify something that is just one question, but I felt pretty comfortable using it for this analysis. This question had really high sensitivity and specificity in terms of being able to distinguish between people who may have elevated fear versus low fear. From my own experience with diagnostic tools, a sensitivity value and a specificity value close to 0.9 is pretty good for a single item. Yes, thank you. That's helpful. Certainly, I can comment on the use of screening items and targeting. We've been in quite a lot of that at Kew University recently with the start-back tool that I know Julie and some others are now using for various purposes. And I think we well understand that it's important to screen. And I think this research has been illuminating and throwing up things that I think we need to investigate further. But I think clinical implications, that's where I would like to move the discussion now because it's a very well-constructed paper and it uses quite sophisticated statistics, which are too hard for me, certainly in places 
and I would imagine for some of our audience will also be a little challenging. So perhaps I could move the discussion on to looking at the clinical implications of treatment of fear in the context of shoulder pain and what this study tells us about how we might address that problem in clinical practice. So who would like to start off? Mark, have you any comments on how you see this study illuminating clinical practice or making suggestions for where we might go in that direction? The way that I actually would interpret this in my particular clinical practice is actually more reflective than directive. That when we came through the results here, I was a little bit surprised to see that fear was meaningful in some groups, like for example here, that it was more likely to give you worse outcome if you had a muscle tendon lesion than if you had a fracture. And then when Bhagwant and I were talking about this, it made me think about the way I approach someone who's coming to see me who's had a fracture and that potentially my interaction with that person is saying, well, it's a fracture. We know it's got a distinct healing time frame. We've got a very clear set of events that are going to happen. And once those have happened, then we'll put you on this rehabilitation program and everything will be awesome in X number of weeks. And I can say that quite confidently to that person. And yet, Dr. Main, if you come to see me because you've got some shoulder pain and I suspect that you might have a rotator cuff tear and I say, well, I think the prognosis is good and we might be able to make differences, that potentially the way that I'm interpreting your condition and talking to you about how I plan to proceed could in fact be some of the underpinning causes of what we saw in this data. So obviously there's a lot of follow-up that has to happen for me to confirm that particular theory on my part, but that's kind of how I've interpreted that in the way that I'm approaching people with shoulder pain. Might I just follow that up with one question for everyone really, and reflecting back in your comparison between the fracture and the muscle tear, is it possible from the data to understand really how consistent that finding was within the disease categories? In other words, were there different spreads of high versus low fear within each of the disease categories? I'm not sure about this. I feel that even within these categories, individuals are quite different in terms of how they respond to the condition. Some individuals have said, oh, yes, I was very fearful, and it's been five years, and I'm still very fearful of trying to do daily activities because I feel that if I do something, I'm going to trigger pain and I just don't want to do that. But then others say, you know, I really need to do these things. And when they take this cognitive approach, they tend to think, I have healed, I should not feel that pain. And when they do take that cognitive approach, they tend to be better in terms of function. Thank you, that's helpful. That's actually the view that I derived at. But really from what you're saying, Bhagwan, it sounds as if really the important thing maybe that this study has done is alerted us to the fact that there are differences in fear that are worthy of further investigation. And really this study suggests a number of lines of research. Julie, do you have any other comments on the implications of this study as you see it for further research or how we might think about clinical practice? Yeah, I'd like to just round out our discussion on Mark's point before I come back to that, specifically his point about the muscle tendon injuries and the fractures. I think it's worth pointing out statistically that they had almost exactly the same adjusted difference between the high and low fear groups. 
But I wouldn't jump to attributing that to factors related to communication and the disease process or the underlying cause. With respect to further research, I think this study suggests a number of different avenues, as any good study does, for future research. Along the lines of prospective longitudinal studies, there's certainly a need for follow-on studies that perhaps add additional variables to really understand the complex interrelationship between a lot of the factors and also perhaps being able to better characterize the clinician in terms of the clinician's beliefs and attitudes because we know those affect outcomes as well as the actual interventions delivered. Research in the area of back pain would certainly indicate that a tendency towards more passive attitudes and more passive interventions on the part of the therapist may relate to patients who demonstrate increased fear and that may all work together to diminish outcomes. So to be able to characterize what was actually done for the patients would certainly be advantageous. Another area of research more on the experimental lines would be to look at various strategies that would try to deal with fear either sort of general cognitive behavioral treatment strategies or explicit interventions that have perhaps been tried in other conditions like graded exposure types of approaches to specifically mitigate fear and look at the effectiveness of those treatments, particularly in the subgroup of patients who are identified with high fear. So those are the things that really come to my mind. Thank you. Mark, have you any thoughts about where this study might lead in terms of further research? Um, yes, Bhagwant and I have talked a little bit about extending this farther, including other factors, because specifically we looked at change in pain over time, but we didn't look at change in fear. We don't know anything about whether those initial baseline fear measures changed over the course of rehab and then how that might have impacted the outcome. So that's of particular interest to me out of this data set. And I know Bhagwant, I think, had a couple of other ideas for himself. That's my selfish take on it. Bagwant, what about you then? I think this is a very interesting starting point. There are multiple psychological factors that seem to have effect on rehabilitation outcomes, such as pain catastrophizing and depression and general anxiety along with fear, and I feel that perhaps we as clinicians and researchers would be better off trying to come up with a cumulative index where all these factors are combined together to indicate if a person has a low score on this index, perhaps the traditional rehabilitation treatment would work well for them, but if they're high on the index, then we need to incorporate alternative strategies. Yes, I think that's helpful. And there are, of course, we talked about the feed avoidance model. It's directly relevant to this paper, but there are a number of other models incorporating things like self-efficacy and so forth. So just a couple of further reflections that I've got on the paper as a whole. I think what it does is it draws our attention to something that should be better researched and further understood. I would agree with Julie's caution about jumping in with treatment trials before we have a slightly better picture of mechanisms and possible mediators. But one of the reasons I was excited about this particular study was that we just have so little data of this sort. And it's obviously a tremendous opportunity. And I think the authors have to be congratulated on the care and sophistication of their analysis. And as it's often the case, the most important thing about papers is what they actually lead on to. So I would just like to thank Agwan Sidhu 
I'd like to thank Mark Bishop and I'd like to thank Julie Fritz all very much for giving you time. Yeah, it's been a pleasure talking with all of you. Thank you. Send us your comments or suggestions about this or other PTJ podcasts via email ptj at scienceaudio.net or voicemail 626-593-7825. This has been a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net. Thanks for listening. Thank you.